Thanks. Uh, good morning. Welcome, everyone. I'm Pastor Bruce. It's so good to see you here. And uh, wasn't it a surprise to see the fog this morning? I was really surprised. Um, we just flew in last night from Concord, California, 94 degrees. This feels really good. I'm really grateful to be back here uh, with you all in the house of the Lord this morning to worship. Uh, again, good to see you here. We're so glad that you've come this morning. And after worship as well, we've got Jean Marie's baby shower coming up. So we hope that those of you that are here will stay and have a good time. And also in the Fellowship Hall, there's lots of goodies and fun down there too. So lots of things are happening in the life of the church. The most important thing that happens in the life of the church is prayer. Prayer and reliance on God. And if you've been watching the news and all the stuff going on in Israel right now, as well as we know Ukraine and the world's a crazy place at times and always, always surprising in so many ways. But God has always got the answer. And so let's pray and ask God's favor upon the people that are in the midst of all that conflict. And also, Lord, just pray for the Lord to bless us this morning to enrich our time and worship together. Heavenly Father, God, we come into your house today on a foggy morning here in Oregon. It's cool. It's refreshing. We thank you, God, that you're the author of all good things. Every good and wonderful gift comes from above, and we give you thanks, Father, for our salvation in Christ Jesus, for the blessings we have in our daily bread, for the shelter, the warmth, the camaraderie, the community, who it is that we are in Christ Jesus. We know our identity. We know, Lord God, our work to be done, the mission to carry the good news of Jesus around the world, to have a great time at the baby shower, to celebrate life and joy and family together. Lord, it is a wonder that we come into your house today to give you praise and glory because you've revealed yourself to us. And we thank you for this. And we thank you, God, for who you are and what you do. And Lord, our hearts are troubled, I'm sure, by the conflicts and the escalations and the loss of life in Israel and Gaza and Ukraine. And Lord, those are just the places that make the news. There are so many other things happening. And you see it all. And so, God, we pray for your will to be done. We, we pray for wisdom for our leaders, guidance. We pray for peace. We pray for justice. We pray, God, that you would watch over your people and that the good news of Jesus will shine all the brighter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's all stand in worship our Lord together. I always feel like I need to say something about Ebenezer in this first song. <laughs> I, not Ebenezer Scrooge, it's a different guy. No. When we raise our Ebenezer, we're saying, this is what we believe, this is where we stand, and as for me, my house, and as far as the place, this house here today, so we worship the Lord. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we're here to uh, enjoy and worship our God together. Here we go. <laughs> Fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, some by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain fixed upon it, mount of thy reach. 
Thank you, Father, that you, for your grace that draws us to you, your love. Lord, we're here because you have brought us here this morning, and we love you so much, and we thank you so much, Lord, that your grace and your mercy uh, exceeds our failures, Lord, our sin, and we're just so grateful, Father, for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name.
was the payment his life was the cost we stood beneath the death we could never afford our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the lord his mercy is more Father, your love is enduring, your will is unchangeable, your purposes, your plans are unfolding, and God, we thank you that we can trust you, that we can call you Abba, you're our Father, and we're your sons and daughters through faith in Christ, and God, we thank you that you hold us near and dear, that you watch over us, being the Father of the house, Lord God, we know that you're our protector, our provider, that we can turn to you 
and find comfort and rest and peace and assurance. Lord God, in troubled times, it doesn't need to have a national calamity. It can be very personal, individual, familial. We know that it hurts. In this world, there's pain, there's suffering, there's loss, there's heartbreak. And yet, Lord God, too, there's joy and life and excitement and enthusiasms. God, you hold our hand no matter what our circumstances. And we thank you so very, very much that we are your children through faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, who rose from the grave, guaranteeing eternal life. And we thank you that we have your Holy Spirit living in us. And we thank you, God, because you're the author of every perfect good thing. And we thank you that all that goodness, the resurrection to eternal life, a heaven and a new earth to come that will not have sin in it at all, no evil, all good. We look forward to what you have in store. Thank you, God. May your face shine upon us. May we experience your blessings today. We thank you, God, for everything that you bring us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, the kids are free now to head down the hallway for Sunday school and Gabe's middle school, high school group. Hi, Gabe. So feel free. Uh, as they're heading out, just a couple of quick announcements. One, I've had to move the new members class from this coming Saturday until later this month on October the 28th from 9 to 12. That'll be uh, October the 28th. That'll be a Saturday from 9 to 12 in my office. That's the same day as our harvest party later that evening. So um, I've, I've had a schedule conflict, and I've had to bump it back a little bit. Also, don't forget the baby shower for Jean Marie is right after church in the fireside room, and I'm sure that'll be a great fun time. Also, just to let you know, there are two ministries that this church supports, and they both have fundraisers on the same night in two different locations. And so you can, I hope you'll pick one or the other. Uh, Teen Challenge, November the 4th, and also Young Life and Canby have fundraisers. Uh, we're sponsoring a table at the Teen Challenge event, and we have room for many of you to, to sign up and come to so let the office know, and we'd love to know that you'd like to attend. It's, it's at no cost to you for the table. Just come and enjoy, um, and we'll have more information about that coming up. But we'd love to see our table full, and then there are things that we can bid on and support financially as well, Teen Challenge. And also, I know that Young Life will have a fundraiser as well, so we'll hear more about these things as time goes by. But I wanted you to put that on your calendar and your hearts and minds so that we don't miss out. Um, before I begin, I just know that there's so much going on, and I know from our uh, prayer chain and, and family here and everything, why don't we just take a moment before I read the word that whatever's on your heart and mind, why don't, why don't you just pray quietly before the Lord right now? I think we should do that. Just a quiet time of prayer. Let's, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for ministering to our hearts and minds and spirits this morning. We praise you, Father, for the answers to prayer that you always bring. Sometimes, Lord, it's not what we expect. Sometimes, Lord God, it's, it is definitely a surprise. But you never disappoint us because you fill our hearts, Lord God, with joy and comfort and peace and assurance. In this world, Jesus said, we'll have trouble. But then he also said, take heart. I've overcome it. Thank you, Father, for being our overcomer and that we are overcomers in Christ. It's a great blessing, and we thank you so much that you know us near and dear and that you love us forever. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of us here in the sanctuary, I'd like to invite you to turn to the last part of Romans chapter 11 with some new content in it. The next Sunday's sermon is going to finish chapter 11 uh, with a doxology, it's called. So I wanted to mention that in advance because I'm contemplating next Sunday for us to have a moment where we can speak out a word that we're thankful to God for that has something to do with God's nature, like Almighty God, the riches of His grace, things like this that we feel we can express our thanks to God for. That's what Paul does at the close of chapter 11, and that's coming up next Sunday. I'll also have a brief recap of 11 chapters worth of Romans. And it's not going to be a long recap, but there's so much there in these 11 chapters that lead us to the following uh, set of sermons after Teen Challenge has preached and led worship here is going to be jumping into chapter 12 where we get to that famous, therefore. What do we do with 11 chapters worth of theology and understanding of God's purposes and the way in the world that God is at work? And these chapters 9 through 11 are about Israel. And I thought with all the news going on, I mean, what, what a poignant point in time for us to hear what God's plans are for the future, not of the state of Israel, but for the people of that heritage. And so we'll look at the word this morning, and I think that we'll find that Paul has much to say. Some of it will be super clear, and some of it will be a bit muddy, but that's how it goes. The Lord knows what's going on, and we're given what we need to know here. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Verses 25 to 32 in Romans 11. So Paul writes to the Roman Christian church made up of Gentiles and Jews alike. He says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He'll turn godlessness away from Jacob, which is another word for Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. 
What do we know about God's future plans, current and future plans for Israel? Just a quick you know, thought process here. I've got a couple of questions for us. Did you ask yourself if I'm referring to ethnic Israelis, or did you ask yourself if I was referring to the nation-state of Israel, or both? Would you say that God's future plans are for ethnic Israel? Do you know what they would be? What about God's future plans for the nation-state? Are Christians, both Jew and Gentile, considered to be spiritual Israel? There's a lot of questions inherent in this, and some of these questions you may be like, well, that pastor has way too much time on his hands. I've never even thought about half of that stuff. But in the life of the history of the Christian faith, these questions have come up repeatedly, and people have asked, who are the Israelis that Paul is writing about? Is, has the church replaced Israel? There's lots of questions and thoughts and things out there in Christendom, you could say, if I can use that word loosely. Um, what is the truth? What is Paul getting at? And that's the key piece. We don't want to put things onto the Bible. We want the Bible to speak from within. What do we learn to have open hearts and minds to the truth of God's Word? None, a quick point here, none of Paul's letters, including Romans, none of Paul's letters are going to address the nation-state of Israel. So we can set that one aside. He doesn't really talk about God's future plans for the nation-state. Paul mentions it, for sure, but his focus isn't on the nation-state. His focus is on people. It's always focused on people, not politics and statehood. God's plans for the state of Israel you'll find in the Old Testament prophets. So if you want to know what the future of Israel is, the best source is to go back to the Old Testament or the First Testament and look at what the prophets said in God's promises to Abraham. And all of those things are lined out there, but that's not Paul's concern here. And I want to just set that where it belongs. So we're not going to look for those answers about the state. Paul also doesn't teach what's called replacement theology, which means that the church is Israel and the Israeli people are no longer the chosen people that God chose to be witnesses to the world of the good news of the Messiah. And I don't believe that that's what Paul teaches either. Because if that's true, then God has no future plans for the people of Israel. Um, it also was, uh, it's been widespread, that idea, since the second century, so that's not a new thing in the Christian church. It goes back a long ways, but when I read Paul, and I'm speaking pastorally now, I've looked at all of this, I can't see that in Paul's writings. So I do think there's still the chosen people of God is the Israeli people, and that doesn't mean chosen for salvation and others are not. They were chosen with privilege, many blessings from God that they could share with the world around them. And it's the same situation for us today. We're privileged to know Jesus. And we're to share that wonderful gift of knowledge and faith with the world around us. It's the same idea that God has for us. There's lots of problems if you think we've replaced Israel. For instance, you'd have to choose that all the Old Testament prophecies about Israel are all, all allegories. There's not a literal bit in it at all. And I can't get there. I don't understand how that could be the case when I look at the Old Testament prophecies and things. You'd have to force every or nearly every reference to Israel in the New Testament to mean the church and not the people of Israel at all. But what did Paul say at the beginning of chapter 11? I asked then, did God reject his people? 
by no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He's clearly an Israeli who has been called by God to belief in Jesus Christ. So I don't find the replacement going on in scriptures as some might. Now, the Bible also doesn't teach that there are two plans of salvation. How many of us at some point in our lives thought that the Jews had their path of salvation and the Gentiles had their path of salvation? That the Jews were intended by God to be saved by works, saved by following and obeying the law. Now, that's what I thought years and years and years ago before I went to seminary. Before I, well, years before I went to seminary, probably in my late teen years, I was confused. I thought, well, God has chosen the Jews, the Israelis, therefore he's chosen them to be saved, but he's going to save them by the temple worship, the tabernacle before that. All the rituals and all the laws, if they could do it, they're in. And then later on I came to realize God gave them the law so they would realize they can't do it. And they fall flat on their knees and they say, God, I need your mercy and grace. And if you look at the Old Testament, God's mercy and grace and steadfast loving kindness are prolific throughout the teachings in the Old Testament. Without that, they're lost and they know it. So they were never saved by their own achievements. They were saved by faith in the Messiah, going clear back to Genesis chapter 3. That's such an integral part of it. Now, the church is part of spiritual Israel. You find a lot of comparisons there between the New Testament and the Old Testament. I'll give you two quick examples. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, is using the same language for Christians as God used in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. We're a holy priesthood, a nation belonging to God. We're a holy people. He uses the same language, but he doesn't say we've replaced He's saying that we're grafted in. We're in addition to now that movement of God to reach the world for Christ. Galatians 3.29 talks about being an heir, right? Being an heir, a, a, a children of God. That also echoes Isaiah 65.9. So you get these comparisons going on, but we're not a replacement. We're grafted in, a wild olive branch, we learned last Sunday. So Israel when we read about it, doesn't mean that God has canceled his plans. Paul made that very clear. God has not canceled plans, but what's unfolding is God is telling us about how his plans unfold, how salvation will come to the people of Israel. And it, we're a big part of that, not being evangelical Christians, but Christians worldwide are part of that witness to the people of Israel of the blessings of God, the hope that we have in the resurrection, the peace that we have with God, the joy that sustains us, that strength that God gives us through the downturns, not just economically, but emotionally, relationally that we have in this world. Thank God he is who he is and that we know him through Christ. I want to read a couple of examples. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus, because it's the power of God for the salvation of Everyone who what? Believes. Believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So the key to salvation for Jew and Gentile is what? Belief in the gospel. The good news that Christ died on the cross, was buried, rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven and is coming back someday. All that is inherent in the work of God for us. And there's a new heaven, a new earth, and eternal life for us. Forgiveness of sins. It's all there. 
And Paul says it's all rooted in your belief. God did it. The mechanism is faith. Let's look at another one, Romans 2, 19 to 20, or 9 to 11. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The Jews do not get a pass. They're not immune from uh, the consequences of sin. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. This isn't about ethnicity. This isn't about nationality. This is about God's love for the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Jews were privileged with the information that they could share with the world. They didn't often do well at that. We, too, are privileged with the blessings of the gospel, and we, too, sometimes don't do very well at that. We're not meant to keep it to ourselves. We're meant to share it with the world around us. That was always God's plan. Romans 3.9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Romans 10, 12 to 13, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So to say, as I once thought years back, that the Jews had a different way of being saved was actually anti-Semitic because I wouldn't share Jesus with them. And don't they need Jesus? What does the Bible say? They sure do, as does everybody. This is the message that Paul's gospel is bringing out. Not Paul's unique gospel, but sharing the gospel. He's making it very clear for a mixed church of Jew and Gentile, Christians alike, that they are all one in Christ Jesus. All one in Christ Jesus. Okay, the reason he's writing this section is because the Gentile Christians at that church felt superior to the Jewish Christians. They developed an attitude like, well, you used to be the chosen people of God, but now we are. We're first class. We get to sit in the front of the airplane. You get to sit in the economy class. We'll all get there, but you know, we get the slippers on the way to Hawaii. You have to wear your own shoes. We get the wine and all the extra good stuff to eat and extras besides, and, well, you'll get there. You get whatever you get back in the back. And that was the attitude they had. And Paul says, that's just crazy. That's not the way to go. So how do we start off? The, the point in your outline here is this, the mystery revealed. Paul starts off talking about a mystery. Let's look at what he says. I don't want you to be ignorant about this mystery brothers, which means everybody, so that you may not be conceited. You see the problem? Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Mystery. What does mystery mean? Is it mysterious? Is it a whodunit? Well, don't we know whodunit? God. Clearly, mystery for Paul is a technical term. When he says the mystery revealed, he's saying it's from God. He's not saying when it came. He's saying from whom it came. 
God revealed the mystery even in the Old Testament. And Paul isn't saying, all you Old Testament readers, you didn't have a clue, did you, until now. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, it's been there, and God is the one that told us. That is why he says it's a mystery revealed, because it came from God. I think that's good to know. Um, so though we don't think the people never knew until then, they did. Paul's point is it comes from God. And so what Paul says God taught us, even in the Old Testament, was there would be a sequence of saving events. God called Israel, the, people, the Hebrew people that he brought out of Egypt, to be his own, a holy priesthood, to represent him, God, to the world, to be missionaries, to be missional, to share the pe- with the people in the world the Messiah, the Savior, the nature of God that we're saved by faith, that God's mercy and grace and faithfulness are huge and lovingly important, and that everybody can come to saving faith in the Messiah. That was their calling. That was God's purpose, and that's how it started. But then when Jesus came, the Jews rejected the Messiah. Not completely, but a remnant of believers remained, Paul being one of them. But the majority of Israel said, no, crucify him, right? And leave him dead and buried and gone and done. That's the rejection part. Now, when they rejected Christ, then the missional work went to the Gentiles. Paul became one of the prime missionaries to the non-Jewish or the non-Israeli populations. Started with the Israeli people in synagogues, but then went into the Gentile communities. And Gentiles were swarming in large numbers to this wonderful faith in Jesus. And they were outnumbering the Jewish Christian community at some point. That left a lot of people scratching their heads as to what what is God up to? Why would the Jewish people with the scriptures reject the Messiah and the Gentiles, who really weren't that astute and educated in the Bible, come to faith in Christ in such a large way? The plan of God, the mystery revealed is, the Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus would make the Israelis who rejected Jesus envious. We want what you've got. How can you have peace with God? How can you have the assurance of your salvation and you're all right with God? How can you have that hope in the resurrection, the life eternal, that you know that you're, you're, you find your rest in Jesus? You know that the Holy Spirit is in you. You've got this intimacy with God that you and I can call God Abba. That's what children in Israel call their dads, Daddy, Abba, Abba. There's an intimacy that we enjoy. And the biblical plan of God is that these various things will make the people who have rejected Christ envious of the blessings they've missed out on. This is what Paul says is a pattern. Even Jesus said this in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to explain a few things here, and then we'll get to some of the food for thought, which is at the end here. What does the full number of Gentiles has come in mean? Well, Gentiles are those who aren't ethnically people of Israel, of which I would include myself, so I would be in that group. And to come in, using Paul's 
letter would be, I'm adopted by Abba. I am now a son or a daughter of the Father, as you could say and I could say, by my faith, your faith in Jesus Christ. This is what we know, and so we've come in. We are now children of Abraham by faith, that spiritual Israel, grafted in to that root that is rooted in faith, faith in the Messiah alone, that God's grace and mercy is the means of our salvation in Christ. But whatever the full number is, gratefully, it'll be more than we can count until the full number of Gentiles has come in. I don't know how many that is. Do you? Full number. It's going to be big. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. How many? Too many to count. I'm really excited about that. In a day and an age where the Christian church is shrinking, at least in identity here in our country, worldwide and historically, God has not been shaken by this. God is at work. There is no cause for despair or feeling down about it. We just march forward with the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why we're here. And God does the mighty work. I went online and I really was looking for answers to my own personal curiosities. How many people worldwide come to faith in Jesus Christ every day? Now, you know you're not going to find this great answer like, well, we've done the research and on a daily basis, X, right? But what you do find is what's estimated from the various Christian ministries that are at work around the world that 40,000 to 100,000 people worldwide come to faith in Jesus Christ every day. That's like the entire population of Oregon City coming to faith in Jesus every single day. Isn't that great? 365 days a year, every day. The Jesus film started showing uh, some time back, and now it's been shown to 665 million people who have accepted Christ. 665 million people in the course of the Jesus film, apparently, by watching that movie of Jesus' life, have come to faith in Christ. That's just one global outreach among many, many, many. In 2020, during the COVID period, do you remember that? Yeah. Or would we like not to? It would be like not to. But during the lockdowns and all the masking and all the can't hobnob, and, you know, if you get sick, you've got to isolate and all that kind of stuff. During that time in 2020, 3,000 Muslims every month came to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes, you know, when God shakes up the world around us, people realize the foundations they stand on are cracked and broken, and they realize this is not what I need. I need to have a firm foundation, and they turn to Jesus. So what can God do? <laughs> Just looking at this, it's amazing what God does. It's the big picture. I wish we could see the whole picture like God does. But this should be enough to encourage all of us. So whether the numbers every day go up and down, we know that the full number, as God intends, will be reached. And when that day comes, then Christ will come. And the Jews will turn in, in envy of what we've been blessed with. Now, I don't, I'm going to talk about timing in a minute. Hang on to that. How is this going to happen? Matthew 24, 14. This is the only thing I know that can speed up the return of Jesus. This is the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. 
That was God's original plan from Genesis chapter 3 clear on through. And then the end will come when God says it's time. And that way the full number of Gentiles will be reached. So the gospel could go out into the whole world, but until the full number of Gentiles come in, we're not done. What is the mystery then behind Gentiles coming to faith? Well, it's real simple. I've said, I've said it several times. Genesis 3, God promised a Savior. In Genesis 12, verse 3, God told Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed. It's all by faith that we're saved by Christ. Believers. And so here comes the hard part. You ready for the muddier part? So all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? You might think, well, it sounds like all Israel, but then it depends upon what Paul means by Israel and what the timing might be. It's gotten a lot of attention. Many of you have very strong perspectives on this, I'm quite certain. And I also know that I'm a very open-minded person on how you would interpret this. I have done my best to do diligence, to divide the Word of God correctly, which is what I'm asked to do. And I will tell you where I'm coming from, but I also know that uh, some of you may have a different understanding about this. I appreciate that and respect you greatly. Uh, as long as we're biblically rooted, that's what God wants. So let's have a look. Who are included in all Israel? When does this happen? And how does this happen? Those are the questions that come up. So who are all Israel? Paul doesn't tell us. He just says all Israel will be saved. He just leaves it there directly. You've got to look at the context. You've got to look at how it's used in the Old Testament to know what it is that he's talking about. The context is not the state of Israel. Paul is not focused on the nation state of Israel. Paul knows that in the Old Testament, Israel could mean some of Israel or all of Israel. It's ambidextrous. You can do one or the other, and he doesn't tell us which of the other it is. And since Gentile Christians will make unbelieving Israel envious, Israel clearly then isn't Gentile, right, in this case. We're talking about the people of Israel. So all Israel might be every single ethnic descendant of Abraham who was alive at some future point in time, and there'll just be this massive sweeping movement. Or it could mean that the full number, like the full number of Gentiles, the full number of all of those Abraham's ethnic descendants will reach that point where God says they've come in. Both are possible. So when does that happen? Now this, this is where I just want to stop for a second and say there are several possibilities, at least four, but two of them are dominant in Christian circles, okay? Two are dominant. First is known as premillennial dispensationalism, and it's just a pieces of, the, all of history is labeled in sort of periods of time. And so if premillennial dispensational means that Jesus is going to return, there'll be a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. During that time frame, the people of Israel will come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the dispensational perspective. The second one is typically the, the, another predominant one, is called amillennialism, which means that the reference to a thousand-year reign of Christ is symbolic and it's happening now. And it's understood to be in the sense of we're in that time frame today. And so the full number of the people of Israel that will be saved is ongoing even now. Whether you believe one or the other, Paul doesn't tell us. 
Paul does not say it's one or the other. What's more important to Paul, and don't miss this, if we get lost in premillennial dispensationalism or amillennialism, we're missing what Paul was passionate about. People. People. He's more interested in how it happens than when it happens. But it's going to happen. God's will be done. What he's focusing on is how it happens, and he's blending two Old Testament chapters, parts of them, together to give us an answer. He's quoting from Isaiah 27 and Isaiah 59, and he wrote this in 26b and 27. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, away from Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Let's look at this. Who's the deliverer? Christ, the Messiah. Will come, that's Jesus' promised return, from Zion. Now, Zion is another word for Jerusalem. You need to understand that in the Bible, there's an earthly Jerusalem. I've been there a couple times myself. There's also a heavenly Jerusalem. Where does Jesus come from? Heaven, when he returns. Where is that Jerusalem then? I think it's in heaven. Look at some examples, Hebrews 12. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Galatians 4, the Jerusalem that is above is free. Revelation 3.12, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven. So it's Christ returning from heaven at the end of history as we understand it from that Jerusalem. And Jesus will turn the descendants of Jacob, the people of Israel, from their sins. That is how it happens. How it works itself out, I'm not going to get too wound up about. But what I do know is God has a plan. And God's going to work that plan, and God's will be done, and it's our responsibility not to ferret out all the nuts and bolts. Our job is to do what? Pray, call upon the name of the Lord, and share Jesus Christ. Pray for Israel, not because they're special, but they are certainly part of God's people, chosen, called, and elected by God to be witnesses. And right now, they're not in large measure. We need to pray for them as we pray for the world around us. God loves the whole world. Salvation for Jew and Gentile is only by God's grace. Romans 10, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That's Paul's point. It's about Jesus. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God. Let's wrap it up then. Chapters 9 through 11. How does Paul finish before he hits the doxology? What is he doing? Well, he's simply reiterating what he's been saying. Let's look at what he did. As far as the gospel is concerned, this good news of Jesus, they're enemies on your account. In other words, they're not in favor of Jesus. They're not enemies militarily or politically or economically. They're just opposed to the good news of Jesus in large measure at that point. They are enemies on your account, but as far as election is concerned, as far as God is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised them that all nations will be blessed through 
what Abraham had, and that was faith. And God said, that faith, that trust in me, I will credit as righteousness. You are right with me now. I forgive you your sins. You're right with me. Faith, faith alone. That's what Paul starts off with in Romans as well. We're saved by faith. Just as you who were at one time, oh, for God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. God does not change his plans. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, those Gentiles, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. It's that first sentence that drove Paul to write three chapters. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. As far as the gospel concerned, and there's a flow, an ebb and a flow in God's sequencing that he is reiterating here one last time. Israel was chosen, but only a remnant believed in Jesus. The majority rejected. Unbelieving Israel is broken off by God. A remnant Gentile believing in Jesus Christ until their full number has come in. They are grafted into that root of faith. Unbelieving Israel become envious of the Gentile Christians' blessings from God and their confidence in the Lord. And so all Israel at the end will be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, the sequence of the final moments of history are somewhat foggy. Now, some act like they're not, but I think if you really want to be honest, it's not as clear-cut as some make out. But we do know this. We know how they're saved, and we know who does it. And that is what Paul is really focusing on, is Jesus. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Them all are Jew and Gentile alike, who recognize that they're sinners, who recognize that when they face God at that moment in heaven, how can they stand before an almighty God who's perfectly holy? By faith in Jesus Christ, who took away our sins, we are right with God. And so we look forward to meeting our Father in heaven. No fear in that quaking sense. It's all right. We have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Food for thought. Here's some food for thought that I've thought about myself for me and my life in Christ Jesus, and I wanted to share it with you in your life with Jesus. First of all, God's calling me to faith in Jesus challenges me to live every day for Christ. I've been called, I've been chosen, I've been elected by God to have faith in Jesus Christ. Is it just for me? Do I take it for granted? Or am I called by God and gifted by God with the privileges of knowing the gospel and being saved to share it with the world around me? That's a great question for all of us. How will anyone be envious of my salvation if I live just like they do? If I'm supposed to make Israel jealous, envious of my faith in Jesus Christ, but I live like the world, why would they want that? And it's something to consider, too, in the world around us. There should be some distinctives. And I'm glad that we got up this morning and came to church. That's a distinctive. That's a wonderful one. And that we love each other. Then another one. All God's promises to me are irrevocable in Christ. What God says he'll do, he does. When God promises, it's yes. It's never maybe. 
If all God's promises to me are irrevocable in Christ, can I trust his plans for me? Can I trust his plans for me? I tell my kids, you know, it's not how long your dad lives, but for whom he lives that counts. Isn't that right? I know his plans for me are good, and it's going to be fine. How about you? I should be humble and grateful that God has shown his mercy in Christ to me. It's not my achievement. It's not my work. It's not my character. It's not my worth or value or what you think of me. What matters is what God has done for me, and that is a humble, grateful place for me to live. So where did pride go? Out the window. Pride in the good positive sense is you can give God thanks for the gifts and talents and abilities he's given you. Give God thanks. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Boast about what God is doing in the church. That's great because it goes back to God. Give thanks. Say thank you very much if you want to thank somebody, but ultimately God made them. Give God praise. Is my life a life of prayer? Am I listening to what God is telling me? Do, do my life choices seek to serve the Lord or just myself? Now, it doesn't mean you have to pack up, move. It just means where I'm at right now, today, in the moment I'm in, am I living for the Lord? Am I alert and challenged to humbly magnify the Lord more than myself? Keeping my eyes on the Lord. Paul wrote, based on God's word in the Bible, so God's word should transform my thinking and my actions too. I'm ready to preach that good word that's coming up in about three weeks. Therefore, man, I want to live in the therefore. I know that I've talked about a lot of word meanings and sequencing and all that kind of stuff, but you know at the end of the day, you've got to take it home. And you've got to say, therefore, what am I going to do with this? And I think that's a great question for all of us. How else can I renew my mind? How else can I renew my mind if I don't read God's word, how will I know his will for me? How will I know how he wants to transform me? And then I want to consider my attitude about evangelism. There's a really an increasing disintegration of distinctives happening in our country about faith beliefs. You know, you've heard for years, people might say, well, don't you all worship the same God? Well, in truth, there is only one God, but do we really worship the same? Do we imagine God to be the same? Would we be able to write a paragraph about the nature of God and all agree on it? No. Very, very different ones. When Muslims pray to Allah, they don't expect an answer. In fact, it's ritual. They're not having a conversation with God because God is so remote and so distant and so removed that it's all about fate and not relationship. You see, we don't worship the same God because people understand God so differently. It was the old joke, you know, God made us in his image and we return the favor, right? That's not what we want. We want the word of God to tell us who God is because that's God's word for us. So because there's an increasing degree of disintegrating differences. And you see the bumper sticker coexist with all the religious symbols on it? Did you ever realize there's not a symbol on that for atheism? 
That's kind of a weird omission, isn't it? But basically, that's kind of what they're saying. I don't care. It's all the same thing. Let's just coexist and not worry about it. Get on with life. 70% of Christians act like that bumper sticker in practical ways. That we don't really care enough about the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be able to share it. Because in practical terms, it hasn't really hit us as supremely important. And statistics say that 70% of us have kind of fallen into that malaise, that relaxed attitude about it. And that's not why we're here. And that may be, some say, the biggest challenge the church faces. And I, and I can't change that. I can't whip it up. I can only mention it, and all of us can look at our own hearts and our lives and what we do and our attitudes and decide for ourselves where we're at with that. But when that happens, when we fail to keep the distinctives in mind, evangelism disappears. Sharing the gospel disintegrates. We're not moved. Either we'll be indoctrinated by the world, which is very powerful in its voice, or we'll trust and hold to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I know that that, that can really bother some folks, but I think it's the best, most loving ap application of God's saving grace that's out there. The Christian faith is the only belief on the planet that says we're saved by an act of God and not ourselves. Every other religion on the planet says it's what you do that matters. The Christian message in the Bible throughout the Old and New Testaments is you're saved by faith, by the grace and mercy of God, through Christ Jesus our Lord. That means we're humble and, and filled with gratitude and the love of God that cannot fade or change because we've had a good day with God or a bad day with God. A happy day with God or a sad, troubled day with God. Because God has done the work. And that's where our joy comes from. Through thick and thin. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. Which means you don't have to go to seminary to be saved. You don't have to be a member of a church to be saved. You don't have to give money at the church to be saved. You don't have to take communion or get baptized to be saved. Who did all the saving work? Jesus did. And the means is faith. Thank God for grace. We are who we are in Christ Jesus. Hmm, that's sweet. And it's so neat because I don't care if you're five years old or 105. Jesus did the work. I don't care if you've got a university education or you barely made it through third grade. Jesus did the work. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. Jesus did the work. It's the widest invitation on the planet. And God did it for us. Let's think about what that means in the world around us. Let's pray, pray, pray. And share as the Holy Spirit leads us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Ah, 9, 10, and 11 are a long stretch, but so meaty. And God, I thank you that we are part of your sequence of saving work in this world. 
that 40 to 100,000 people every day around the world coming to faith, Lord, that's just what we can guess at. You know full well what the real numbers are, and I know that at the end of the day, when the full numbers come in, we are going to be staggered by a number that we can't even count. But even more staggering, Lord God, we're in that count. Thank you so much that you have called us to faith in Jesus and that we know you and love you and are loved by you and that that love allows us to love each other, to live in a world full of chaos and anxieties and hurt and pain, to know that Jesus says, cast all your cares upon me, I care for you. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, my burden is light. If you need rest, here I am. God, thank you so much. Thank you for the plans you have for us. Thank you that we have a good news to share. Thank you for a baby shower coming up, celebrating life, family, community. It's wonderful. Thank you, Father. And thank you, Father, too, that if anybody here today is wondering, you know, that I get it. I, I finally kind of get it, that we're saved by what you've done for us in Jesus. I believe it. Praise God. The Holy Spirit has just transformed your life. You are now right with God. All sins forgiven, past, present, future. Lord, help them and help us to live in the power you give us in the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Testing one, two. Yep. A lot to praise the Lord about. And his, this, this song is uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Remind us.
God is faithful. Amen. Join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And may the love of the Father who really loves you very, very, very much, kids, right, Abba would say, and may the wonderful sacrificial grace of Jesus, our Savior, and the marvelous fellowship that unites us worldwide in the Holy Spirit with you all now and forevermore and all God's wonderful, amazing people can say, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Don't forget, baby shower, good times, happy times. Come on in. All right, hold up, everyone. All right. We have something special before we take off and do all the other things we're going to do. It is Pastor Appreciation Sunday. So, Gabe and Rachel should be up here shortly, but Jenny, if you will come over here, and Bruce, you come out here. So on behalf of the session for all of you, for the congregation, we have got them a little gift. Oh, perfect, awesome. Um, for each one of them, but what I would do is before you take off to go to the shower and do other things, you can say your congrats to them and do all the praising and everything else for all the wonderful things that they do. So, Gabe and Rich, Bruce and Jenny. Oh, thank you guys. And so for all of this, I think get a round of applause for all the work they do. All right. Now we are dismissed. Thank you.